You're listening to Pastor Jesse Miller of City Lights Church. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, I had an interesting conversation this week, and I want to kind of propose something to you to get your mind thinking with me this morning. Um, as we're talking about the spirit-filled life, spirit-filled life, um, we've taken about a year, year and a half with our church of walking through, if you've been with us any length of time, walking through objectively uh, what is the gospel. What is the gospel? And we're handed in Christian culture, or even from a distance, uh, we hear the word gospel, it strikes up different nerves or thoughts, and we really took the first year, year and a half of our church unpacking what it is. Uh, we are a grace-driven church, a gospel-driven church. We're not based on human effort. We don't feel that God blesses us. If we try harder, we're blessed because of what Christ has done. We've really focused in this first year about how the gospel applies to us, because you'll notice that Christians get really weird if they don't have the gospel central. And I joked a few weeks back about uh, buttoning shirts, dress shirts. And when I was young, I struggled with two things. Uh, today, I still can't tie a tie. Aaron tied it for me this morning. I know it's embarrassing, but isn't that nice? All right. She, she ties better than I do. Why am I going to mess with it? Don't fix it if it ain't broken, all right? There's two things I struggled with, though. One was putting on socks. Don't worry, I got them on, but I always had them somehow backwards. The other thing was buttoning dress shirts. And when I'd button a dress shirt, as I'd button it, I would notice that I would be almost completely done and notice that it was like this. And my mom said these words I'll never forget simply, Jared, get the first button right. Now, I don't recall what age that's at. Let's hope it wasn't 13. Um, I was thinking it was probably five or six. But I couldn't get that. But if I knew I got the first button right, then everything else would align. And see, as Christians, as believers, if we have a center on what Christ has done and accomplished on our behalf, then everything else lines up the right way. But if we don't, then things get weird. So you'll notice that the implications of this go into all funny ways. And you notice this typically when things go wrong. So you'll be driving down the street and something goes wrong or your car breaks down or you get a red light, which all of us do in case you're wondering, but something goes wrong and you instantly think, I didn't pray today. I didn't read today. I didn't do my devotions today. And instantly you begin to strike up these things of trying to figure out, well, something's going wrong because I didn't do. And it's amazing that if you really follow the track of that from the top button down, you'll notice that when you have Christ out of center, everything goes wrong because what you say in essence in a situation like that or others is simply, I'm my savior and by me doing good, then things go well. And if I do bad, things go bad. But if we understand what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, first of all, we recognize that everyone gets a red light and cars break down. That's part of life. But we also recognize this, that Christianity is not based on what we do for God, but what God did for us in the historical, literal Jesus Christ on our behalf. When we have that centered, Jesus-centered, our first button, then everything goes in line. And what we've been talking about, really this is our third week, about a spirit-filled life, is about being led by the Spirit. So many Christians, so many believers' lives have a relationship with the Bible, but not with the Lord. It's interesting, I'll say it to you like this. Um, if you studied, say you came across a box full of letters from your great-grandmother, if you will. You, she died before you were born, but you studied these letters so intently that you began to know everything about her. You knew almost exactly what she looked like. You had pictures. You were able to define it. 
you broke down the history behind who she was and the context in which she lived and the house that she bought and who built it. And you began to construct around her, literally knowing everything about who she was. But truthfully, you still couldn't say you know her. You can only say you know about her. See, the scripture for us is a diving board. It's not that it's an end in itself, but it's, it grounds us and it guides us so that we can experience the God of this book. See, the church isn't a museum that we come together and talk about a God who was, but the church is the, where we come together and experience the God who is. If it's anything less than that, we have to really question at the heart of it, is our relationship with a theology or a creed Or is our relationship with the person, or the persons, if you will, the Trinity, God himself? See, it's not enough to have a theology without an experience. It's it's really not. Honestly, it would be ludicrous to go back into the first century, or go back into the point when Jesus resurrected, to the time where these apostles, and all throughout church history, where the Spirit of God was so made real to people, and us, we can divorce it in our day to where we can have an experience with the book, and my relationship with God is tied to or identified with, I read my Bible for five minutes today, I close it, I feel better. <laughs> now, I understand what that's like because for so long, I truly lived like that. If I could just, and it was, do you ever notice, you always, you always realize that at the end of the day, right before you go to bed. Anybody else? If you live under that, right before you go to bed, you're going to sleep and you're like, oh, I got it. And I'm out. See, God isn't, it's not just about easing our religious conscience, it's about knowing and walking with God. I had a conversation with a man this week and he said, you know, Jared, I feel like, uh, I'm really pulled to the intellectual side of Christianity. And I said, well, that's phenomenal. It seems like God's really doing something with you, and you need to study that out as much as you can. He said, you know, my problem is, though, I'm running into people that have problems with drug addiction. And I can't reason with them intellectually. I can't reason with them intellectually. And he said, I feel really pulled intellectually, but at the same time, I can't reason with somebody that's in drug addiction, and I don't really know what to do. And he said, you know, it keeps me balanced, or it makes me desire something more to know that I can't just have an intellectually-based Christianity, but I need a Christianity that's undergirded by intellectualism, but can penetrate the heart of addiction. See, we have to have something that's grounded in God's word, but something that makes real-life experience today. If we don't, then there's really nothing that separates Christianity from anything else. What separates it is simply this. It's not the historical facts, although they're true. It's that history is alive today in our lives in one another. You remember C.S. Lewis, the writer, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, and Lord of the Rings is not him, J.R. Tolkien, just to see if you're open. C.S. Lewis, he was friends with Tolkien in a writer club. Uh, That's an interesting fact to bail myself out of that. But listen, C.S. Lewis had an interesting quote about the demonic. He said, there's two errors that we make. About the demonic. You know, you turn on the Discovery Channel or the paranormal things and you see the guys with the vacuum with the the things that light up when they're near a ghost. It's too much for me. And you see that and that's really just weird. Then the other side of it is we get to the point where we can actually reason away anything spiritual. And C.S. Lewis says that we really can make two errors. One is thinking there's a demon under every bush. And one's recognizing that there's no demons at all. One's overemphasizing to realize that the spiritual realm is everywhere. When you get a flat tire, you think that a demon poked it with a horn of some sort. You carry oil on a holster. Trying to square you ever meet anyone like that. You're their anointing doorposts and the thing, their house is rotting from the oil. You, you meet people like that that are so paranoid by the supernatural or spiritual. But then at the same time, you meet people that absolutely just, 
mm, just discard it as if it's not real. And it's interesting to me that the apostles, even Jesus himself, but maybe some of us this morning will say, well, he was God. But I'll say this, even Paul the apostle didn't have a problem reconciling the same Paul that wrote the book of Romans writes the same book of 1 Corinthians. Now, I'll give you a background just briefly. Romans is one of the most deep, robust theological books that people get lost in. It's incredibly thick. I mean, it's like treading through molasses. If you try to read that, just blitzing through it and not understand the implications, it's like just swimming through molasses. Something so thick, and at the same time, Paul never have a problem with the supernatural or with the spiritual. But yet as Christians, we often caricature or characterize people that are supernatural or into the spiritualism as weird. And I'll say this, that is as offensive as a thought as to say somebody from a different race all looks the same. To say that somebody that's into understanding the gifts of the Spirit or the ministry of the Holy Spirit and to say, well, they're just like them. That's like looking at somebody that's African-American or Chinese or something and say, well, they all look the same. That's preposterous. Try that when you're not with people that look like you. It doesn't work. See, that's preposterous to characterize or caricature one group of people and say, you all look the same. But yet, often when we approach things of the supernatural, the spiritual, we go, well, people are all like this. And listen, I want to suggest to you this morning that we, like my conversation with my friend that simply said, I need a gospel that can reach both the intellectual but also the, the addict. What would you do? If someone came to you in a horrible drug addiction and a horrible pornography addiction, beyond just something psychological, but something where you know the spiritual is involved, what would you do? Would you sit down with them and ask them to recite a prayer? Would you be able to walk them through something? If you can give me my first slide, just the scripture, Matthew chapter 11, verse 16, 17. I want to show a video that uh, Jesse and I found this week was interesting. Jesus says, What should I compare this generation to? They're like children in a marketplace. Children in a marketplace calling out to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Now look at it. Don't just let it hit your head. Jesus said, what can I compare a generation to? So Jesus is literally looking at a people when he's saying this. He goes, "What what analogy can I paint for you to understand the way that this generation processes thought. And he says it's like children in a marketplace. Children in a marketplace. Now, it's interesting if you study any of the finances. And listen, I'm no expert. In fact, this is why I'm talking about it, because I'm not an expert. But if you see the guys on Wall Street, you see it on, maybe on TV. They're at Wall Street, right at the stock exchange. And they've got the thing, and they've got numbers. To me, that could be another language. Anybody else agree? When you, when you look at it, these guys are throwing things. I mean, they're throwing papers and they're typing things. And right there, the amazing part of it is millions and even actually literally billions of dollars is transacting right above their heads, back and forth. And I sit there like a child in a marketplace and go, what is that? I got my calculator. What if I flip it around? I can spell hello. I think I can do another word. I can't remember what it is, right? See, it's amazing, though, because Jesus says, what can I compare this generation to? He's saying literally that there's transactions that are happening, but yet, like children in a marketplace, they don't understand. They're playing a flute, and they're saying, we we sang for you. Why aren't you dancing? It's like, dude, this isn't the place to set up your guitar. This is Wall Street. You can close your box. Go down the street a little bit. They don't understand what's spiritually happening, and it's interesting that 
The same thing happens spiritually with us. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul the Apostle says, while you were pagans or before you knew Christ, you were swept along or you were taken away by mute idols. Great commentary on this says that motionless and dead idols. I want to show a video for you, or to you if you can. apologize for the grammar there. I want to show a video to you just quickly um, about being unaware. And I just thought this was kind of an interesting one. Jesse and I found this week and uh, hate to see that happen. You got to love that. I wish we had the slow-mo. It's like, but this is a different year. It's amazing that a flood doesn't happen overnight, something that takes place like that. I know that's kind of a depressing video. Oh, my Lord, they got swept away. Floods don't happen overnight. There's something that's building up to it. In this case, a tidal wave, something that's moving towards it. These people are standing on a wall watching this massive tidal wave approach them, totally uninformed, totally unaware that something's about to hit them. Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 12 says, concerning spiritual gifts, and the word gifts actually in the, in the original is not there, He says, now concerning spirituals, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed. I don't want you to be unaware. Brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware. I want you to be ignorant. Jesus compares children in a marketplace. This generation is like children in a marketplace. People that understand that there's things happening. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed or unaware. Meaning that we actually have the ability to be aware or be informed. We can either be uninformed or informed. We can either know what's taking place or not know what's taking place. And Paul says, about the spirituals or spiritual realm, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to be aware. He contrasts it, of course, with the four, with the pagan religion that you were led astray by idols that couldn't speak or interact. And then today that you have been delivered to or a God that can speak to you and interact. Maybe you've heard of deism. I was doing some reading this week, and a lot of our founding fathers actually um, were deists or Christian deists, and a lot of them were true Christians. It's interesting, though, deism basically on the website, one of the websites has this belief in God plus reason equals deism. There's all these articles talking about what it is to believe in God, but to have reason. And deism essentially is like spinning a basketball and occasionally putting it back on track, barely interacting, the natural laws. But what separated Christianity from the beginning of time, what separated God's interaction with mankind is not him occasionally interrupting, but him constantly being involved. From the creation of the world, God spoke. Through the covenants, God continued to speak through the prophets and through miracles. Through the resurrection, God spoke dramatically. And now today, God speaks to us by the Spirit to us. Yet, Christianity, church, we've reduced to something that if we be real with ourselves, we give credit to Jesus, we give credit to, we give credit to the right person, we give credit to the right deity, but frankly, their implications of it are still abstract. When it comes down to God's leading in our lives, where we sense and listen, I'm not talking about the extremes of what shirt do I wear when I wake up in the morning. I'm not talking about how do I know if God's speaking to me and if I'm going to be ruled by the subjective. Do I wear this shirt? Do I buy that car? Do I marry this person? I'm not necessarily talking about that as much as recognizing our dependence on a God who interacts with our situations. 
What separates Christianity from every other religion, I say this almost every, other, every week because I want to contrast it constantly for us, is that other religions provide commandments with no abilities to fulfill, like a tightrope they ask us to walk in our own balance, where Christianity is a moat. Christianity is a massive distance between a castle and another side. Nothing can get us there except his grace and his interaction. You were saved by him. You were, everything's about God's spirit initiating something, but yet we can abstractly move him as if he's just some deity in the clouds where the scripture speaks over and over and over that the Holy Spirit is not just the force of God, but the person of God. If we stay true, just a simple Orthodox Christianity. The Holy Spirit's not a force, he's a person. Scripture says he can be grieved, he can be quenched, he can be lied to in Acts chapter 5. He can be sinned against, he can be blasphemed. It's not just a force that mystically comes in. During worship, you get chills down the back of your legs, you're looking for the air conditioner, you're like, oh, I felt the Holy Spirit today. That's great. But it's more than just a chill. It's more than just a movement that comes and brushes our face. It's more than that. It's a person that desires to interact with us and move in our lives. Paul goes on to say this. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's variety of service, but the same Lord. And there's variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers all to everyone. You have been given a gift Not just the gift of the Spirit, but a gift from the Spirit. When we think of gifts, often it's like, uh, you know, you get a gift and you don't like it. Have you ever been given a gift that was already given? Or have you ever re-gifted a gift? Anyone ever re-gift a gift? It's a little embarrassing to re-gift a gift. We've all done it. You got it and you go, that'll be great for somebody else. Thanks so much. Honey, keep the paper on it. What? I I got plans. See, in our culture, gifts are secondary too. There's something that the truth is it's not really typically that important. Gifts are something, you know, we don't really need. It's something that we're blessed with or it's something that's added to. It's not something that we really, I don't really need a gift. I I might want them, but I don't really need them. But see, in this text and all throughout the New Testament, the word gift is not uh, something that we really have a choice on. Do we want or not? It's the word grace, charis. It's the word God's given different graces to people. Each person's been given a grace. You have a grace. There's something about you that brings out something from another. I referenced before Tolkien and C.S. Lewis to redeem myself again from that. When they were in a writer's club, it was interesting. There was another man in there, and when he, when he died, I believe it was Tolkien, C.S. Lewis reflected, when he died, I lost a part of myself. I thought this was interesting. I lost a part of myself when he died. I didn't just lose him, I lost a part of myself. Have you ever noticed that, that there's certain things about different people that bring things out of you? When I'm around Kenny, Kenny knows me. I have a certain relationship with him. There's a, something about it that's unique to him that's different to Mark or different to my wife. Praise God. There's, there's, a different, there's a different grace. There's something that comes out that's different. And Paul says to each one is given a, a grace for the common good of another. There's something about you that's in you. And Paul goes on to describe these graces and say that there's different graces, but they're for the common good of one another. They're not to boast or to build us up, but they're for the common good of the church to encourage it. Because, listen, we're called the body of Christ. The body of Christ, the church, one of the analogies that the scripture gives us is that we're a body. Paul would say later on in chapter 12 that how can the hand say to the foot, I don't need you, or the eye to the 
to the hand, I don't want you, or whatever noise is that each part plays a specific piece. You've been given a grace that you're called to steward. There are graces in these seats here. That the key to us reaching this city and reaching our friends and seeing God restore and redeem this city isn't just some magnificent, incredible preacher wearing a tie with a purple shirt on today looking fantastic in front of you. Uh, Oh, that was me. All right. That's not it. what, what, What brings God's kingdom is not just somebody standing in front of us with incredible worship or seamless transitions or a great trans... Oh, oh, that's fine. Oh, that's necessary. It's good. It it undergirds it. But God's kingdom is brought through the graces on your lives. And listen, they're different than mine. They're different than the person next to you. And even if you have the same grace, it'll function differently through your personality. God has graced you. God has graced you. He's gifted you not just for yourself, but he's given you a grace to be a gift to another person give to another person. Jesus remarks, the works that you do, I will do, or the works that I do, sorry, you will do and greater. Works that I do, you'll do the same and even greater. Isn't that just an outrageous thought, an outrageous scripture? Can, can anybody just, uh, I, I, seriously, I think I just foreclosed on your house or told you your dog died. Okay, let me try that again. I promise you, I'm not stealing your animals. I promise you. Think of, think of, how, think of how outrageous this, this text is. Don't, don't bring, again, let's not just throw it in a box called crazy, and let's not throw it in a caricature called I don't like it. Let's just take the text and just let it press us. Jesus says, the same works I do, you will do in greater I've heard people reason that back and forth, and they say, well, the greater work is preaching salvation than Christ. I think that's a tough hermeneutic to really go there. That means interpreting the word hermeneutic. Jesus said the same works. Well, he doesn't mean the same. He, he means that you're going to do something else. No, Jesus didn't say, well, we're not going to do greater works than Jesus. Okay, we won't even mess with the greater. Let's just take the same works. Jesus said you will do the same works and greater. The same works and greater. Now, that is absolutely outrageous to think that through the Spirit of God, through the Spirit of God, that He wants to empower us, not, not just to come to church and to continue to read devotions, but literally to become the body of Christ, the embodiment of who He is on the earth. That when somebody walks in a church, they don't just experience a sermon, they experience the presence of the Lord. The presence of God. When somebody comes into a service, when we meet someone in the community, they're not just experiencing out here, they're experiencing his presence. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. All right, I'll say amen to myself. Jared, that was, that was worth it. That was really much better than they want to let you know this morning. We need to make room for the Lord's presence this morning and in our lives. We need to make room for him to speak to us, for him to guide us. When we talk about this, it makes people nervous because they think, well, are they going to get off on some crazy train dancing with snakes and drinking Kool-Aid and stuff? Absolutely not. I'm not a big fan of snakes or Kool-Aid, so you're safe. When people get nervous and be led by the Spirit, what does that look like? It doesn't mean we show up at church and just go whatever he wants. I've I've got a message here that I worked on throughout the week 
I prayed through. It doesn't mean that we just show up and wing it and hope that he does something. It means that we prepare, but we're dependent. There's a vast difference between knowing how to change a tire and when you broke down and you've never changed it. I know how to change a tire. Do you? Have you ever done it? It's a lot different than I've watched somebody do it. I've heard about it. I've been around it. I'm familiar with it. I think, I'll never forget the first time I went to change the tire. The bolts were so tight I couldn't change it. Oh, I was familiar. So was my right foot with the bruise on it from kicking that thing as hard as I possibly could because I was familiar with it, but it, it didn't become life to me because I never experienced it. See, the gospel for us is that we're grounded in what Christ has done, but it's a compass and it keeps us on track as we pursue things. But yet we all know this. You're not going to open up your Bible and find out who to marry, what car to buy, what job to get, or change jobs, or what pet to buy, what shirt to wear. You're not going to open up the Bible and find that. If you do, you're reading the wrong Bible. We all know that. See, the Bible is not the story about what we're supposed to do with our lives. The, the Bible is the story about what Christ has done on our behalf, and the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. He's the compass that expects us to walk for this thing to work. He expects us to move. expects us to do something with it. He guides us. We don't just sit there until he prompts us. One of the scariest things, and Mark, if you could come in the worship band, we're going to close with this. One of the scariest things I think is the theology of divine appointments. I, I've offended a lot of people in my life, not always intentionally, sometimes intentionally. Typically not intentionally, though I try not to. But the theology of divine appointments has kind of messed with people's mind. And what I mean by that is this. You're going through the grocery store and you feel like you have to talk to the person. How many people know what I'm talking about? Your blood pressure starts rising, cold sweats, your right ankle starts shaking, or what is that? And you feel, you feel something in you, move, you feel God moving on you. Something about it is, what, what is this? I feel God doing something. It's a divine appointment, and when we act there, it's great, and if we don't, then we feel pressure of some sort. I'm not opposed to divine appointments, I'm just concerned that I think our overemphasis of divine appointments absolutely excludes the rest of our life for God using us. We can lift up the fact that if God really wants to meet me, he knows exactly where my address is. He knows exactly, if he wants to show up, he can send me a postcard. I, I would love if he did that. But we've lifted up divine appointments in times that God absolutely does things. And if we're, not careful, like children in a marketplace, we'll go months, listen, days, months, weeks, years, without really ever being led by God, just his occasional, stay on track. Thanks, Lord. Stay on track. We live in a constant place of dependence on the Spirit. Paul the Apostle was filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts in the beginning. Later on, in Acts, he's again filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians 5, it says this, be being filled. Ephesians 5.18, it's present tense word or active presence. Meaning, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. We're to live in a constant place of being filled with him. It's not something I look back and I go, great, yeah, I had an experience 
at a church service or at an experience here. And I, no, it's a constant place of dependence where we recognize that we need him. That we need him. My prayer is that we start coming to church with so many stories, with so many testimonies of God's inbreaking. That when we come to church, it's a celebration of what God just did that week, thanking him. And then positioning ourselves to receive from him how we can be his missionaries and his ambassadors for this upcoming week. That when we gather together, it's not to go through a routine to ease our conscience. That we come together thanking him for the fact that he just absolutely showed up during our week. I'm not just talking about fireworks. I would love if he did that every time. But I'm talking about being dependent on him where our lives are funnels and channels for him. When we come on Sunday, the first thing we do is thank you, Lord, for what you just did. And Lord, I want to position my heart for what you're going to do. God sets a standard for Christianity that if we're faithful to, is so far beyond us. It's so far beyond us. This isn't something we should look at in our own and go, oh, I can do that. We should look at a scripture like Jesus says, the works that you do, I will, you will do an even greater. We should look at that and go, no way. You know what? That's the response you should have. The first response you should have is like, nope, not me. That response shouldn't lead you to a point where you just sit passively, stuck between eternity and heaven and where you currently live right now. That response should lead us to a place that says, Lord, this word is truth. I can't do that on my own. I need you. Christianity is not us applying this book to our lives. It's God's spirit making it real to us. Let's stand together and worship him this morning. We serve the God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I, I, I want to ask that we're going to sing, if you could sing Rain in Us this morning. I want to take just a few moments this morning. If you need prayer, you're more than welcome to come forward. If you'd like, we're not dismissing yet. But I, I want to I encourage you, wherever you're at, there's, there's points in our lives that we need God's touch. I look at my life, your lives, some of the situations I know. I'm not making eye contact with anybody because somebody thinks I'm referencing them. Maybe your spouse is wherever, not following Christ right now. Maybe your son or daughter is away from the Lord. Maybe whatever situation it is. I'm not very good at the whole pastoral guessing game thing. Like, there's a person here. I'm not very good at that. I can simply say that we have needs because we're human. And there's none of us that are immune to needs. None of us. A great quote from Mark Batterson, the, you know, the only tragedy in prayer is the prayer that's not prayed. The tragedy is that we can, that one answer, unanswered prayer is the prayer we never pray. Let's pray this morning. Let's make room for him during worship. Let's thank him for who he is and not just petition him to do things for us, but let's just thank him. Let's thank him, and then let's ask that he would lead us by his spirit. I can't, I can't wait as we continue in the next few weeks talking about how God empowers each of us. You're not just empowered to show up at a church service, but you're empowered to be the body of Christ. 
And I want to help you. This church is about recognizing what your spiritual gifts are. I'm not talking about a little spiritual club of, or a click about no, but really to know what the grace is on your life and how you can be effective in that. Let's worship today.